you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. But they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Well, if I ask you uh, what your favourite Bible verse is, it's a little bit like going into this amazing museum or this amazing um, jewellery shop and saying, which is your favourite jewel uh, in this shop? For me, at least, there's so many different Bible verses that I would say are my favourites. The one you just heard read is not my favourite, all right? It's a great verse, and we're going to come to it in a moment, but I want to share to you, with you briefly, my favourite verse in the whole Bible and then tell you why. It is my favorite. And then we'll get to that verse, which is good as well. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love it because it's a call to freedom. And I love it because these words of Jesus speak into the need that I have and that you have. Uh, the image is of a, a beast of burden, you know, heavily loaded and laid and collapsing under the weight. And isn't that true that if you're a Christian here this morning, sometimes we feel like that. That the, the burden is heavy and it's weighing down on us and we, we can't stand up under it. And, and of course, for a world out there who are not Christian, that is the daily reality. Heavy burdens. Restlessness. And I love these words of Jesus because of the promise that he offers. Did you hear it? Rest. I'll give you rest, Jesus says. He says, Take my yoke on you. It seems like it's actually a contradiction. He offers rest and then he says, take my yoke. You know what a yoke is? It's a harness. It's usually a wooden cross beam that's laid across a domestic beast of burden in order 
to work. A yoke is something that's an instrument of work. Jesus says, but my yoke is easy and my burden is light. They'll give you rest. Now, who does not want that kind of rest? Uh, Who does not want a light burden and an easy yoke in a world that is often so crushingly intense? Who doesn't want that? Everyone does. So so the question then becomes, the the million-dollar question, how do you get it? If Jesus offers this, this rest, this light burden, this easy yoke, how do you get it? How do I get it? How do you get this? Well, I tell you what I thought. Now, for many years, I think I thought that, how do I get this light burden and this easy yoke? Well, I just come to Jesus. Uh, so when I was 17, uh, I, I, I'd grown up in a Christian family, but I didn't really understand the good news about Jesus. But when I was 17, one day I understood And I put my trust and my faith in Jesus, my sins were forgiven, and I thought, well, I automatically got the easy burden and the light yoke. I was now a Christian, and I had the yoke on my shoulders, and it was easy. And I know why I thought this, because there was so much truth to it. There is so much truth to it. Uh, If you're a Christian here this morning, it will be because you have encountered The reality of God in the person of Jesus Christ who has reached into your world that was dark and has shone his light. He has taken the burden off you. He has called you to himself. He has has loved you through uh, Jesus Christ. He's filled you with his Holy Spirit. That's incredible. And that happens in the moment that we respond to Jesus Christ. It's called justification. We are legally declared just as if you've never sinned. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, you are welcomed in, you were dead, now you're alive. Your heart was cold, now it's warm. It it happens in a moment. The old man is gone, the new has come. And it's all from Jesus and none from you and none from me. It's a free gift of grace. So there's a lot of truth in the fact that in the moment we become Christians, that the light burden is the heavy burden is lifted and the yoke of Jesus is placed on our shoulders and it's easy. But <laughs> it's not all the story. That, that amazing moment of conversion when we, we come to know Jesus is the start of a journey. It's not the end of it. It's, in one sense, stepping out the door onto a journey that lies before us. It's not reaching the end of it. You see, Jesus says in this passage, he also says, learn from me. You notice that? I'm gentle and lowly and heart. Learn from me. And you'll find rest for your souls. And, and in the passage today, which is, which is a wonderful passage of Scripture from John's Gospel... Jesus speaks a little bit about what it is to learn from him, and he uses an analogy which was very effective in the first century, not so effective now, I don't think. At least if you, like me, you grew up on a sheep farm uh, in Australia. So in the context, he says um, that we need to listen to his voice. The good shepherd leads his sheep, and his sheep know their voice, know his voice. Now, for us in a sheep farm in Australia, why this is not so effective is the way we don't lead sheep, we 
forced them. <laughs> we, we heard them. You, you, you've seen it, even if you've not experienced it yourself. You've seen it, and in my, many of my summers were spent like this, herding sheep. And what you did was, you're on motorbikes, I was, that was the best job, and you were, you know, you're revving the engine, and you're bipping the horn, and other people are on foot, and there's dogs you know, leaping up at the sheep, and they're trying to scare the sheep. I used to do snake noises, to try and scare them. You know. The whole thing was, you force them by fear where you want them to go. That's the way shepherding works on Australian farms. Jesus, and we think like, and Jesus says, my sheep know my voice, like the shouting, angry voice, you know, like the horns, is that what? No, no. Uh, in the time of Jesus, and also in many places in the Middle East today, the flocks were smaller. And so the shepherd might know all the sheep's name. Oh, you're fluffy, you know, you're white spot, whatever. And he will call the shepherd, he'll call the sheep, and he'll turn around. Still happens, I've seen this in the Middle East. And, and he will walk, and the sheep will follow along the line. Exactly the opposite of what we do today in Australia. And Jesus, that's the image that Jesus is using. He's speaking his words, his voice, and his sheep hear him, and they follow him. And the point that Jesus is making is we're to do the same thing. We're to listen to the voice of Jesus, who's the gate, he's the door, and we are to follow after him. Uh, the word that's used in the New Testament is disciple. It means a learner, a, a follower, and a disciple of Jesus is not, in his, see, if you wanted to be a disciple to a rabbi, like Jesus was a teacher, you would follow that rabbi and you would learn their teaching. You'd sit at their feet, literally, and you would learn the teaching as they, they gave it from the Word. But that's not all you would do. You, weren't just, you wouldn't just increase knowledge. You would watch how the rabbi lived. You would see his character. And you would follow after that. You would model your life on what you saw. So when Jesus calls us to come and take on his easy yoke and his light burden, it's not just at the moment that we are converted that this takes place. That's the start. He then calls us to listen to his voice and to follow. Now, here's the deal. And this is really important. That will not automatically happen. You're here today, but you will not automatically follow the voice of Jesus. It's not going to happen to you by accident. Believing in Jesus always means following Jesus. Following Jesus always requires effort. Do you hear that? Effort. Maybe at this point you say, Andrew, but I thought Jesus did everything and I did nothing. And this, isn't that what grace is? We talk about the fact that, that every other religion, it talks about what you do for God and how you make yourself right and eventually you get the good person you want to be and then you come to God and he says, well done, you've made yourself good and you're welcome. And Christianity says, no, that's exactly opposite. It's what God has done for you in Jesus. That's grace, isn't it, Andrew? So you're saying, but that's free. I can't earn that. And yet you're saying that following Jesus requires effort. Isn't that undermining grace? No, um, that's not what grace is. Listen to how Bonhoeffer uh, put it. He said this, so, so, so important. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. And because it's been paid, everything can be had for nothing. 
Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? He goes on, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. So Bonhoeffer's pushing back on this idea that, that grace is cheap, that God's done everything so we do nothing. But he says real grace is costly. Listen to this. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. See what Bonhoeffer's saying? There's wonderful truth in the, in the reality that grace is a free gift from God. You can't earn it. No one can make themselves or save themselves. It's death to try. The grace of God in Jesus is free. It's a free gift to you by God. But receiving that free gift of God's grace requires nothing from you, but also something, everything from you as you follow as you listen to his voice. Costly grace is what Paul is talking about, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Listen to what it says. He says, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. He says, train yourself um, we think, oh, no, no, it, it's all free grace, and so there's no, nothing required from me. Paul says, no, no, no. Train yourself. Uh, the word he uses is the Greek word gymnos, from which we get, of course, the word that comes to mind, gymnastics. It does come, actually, but, of course, the other word that comes from, gym. <laughs> it's a word that's laden with sweat. It's got effort involved in it. Paul, who, is, who loves to speak about the freedom of grace in Jesus Christ, that you can do nothing to earn it or to win it, he says, train yourself. Some holy sweat is required, he said, in, in godliness. In, and the physical sweat that we do, well, that's, that's, a, that's of some value. But train yourself for godliness has got value now and for eternity. There's grace cannot be earned but it doesn't mean that there's not effort involved. So uh, Dallas Willard says this, grace is opposed to earning, but not to effort. No earning, but effort required. It's a very important distinction because as humans, we love to go one way or the other, don't we? We love to go free grace, I don't have to do anything, or we go, oh, no, 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 grace is not free, I've got to do it all myself. And they're both equal and opposite errors. Grace as opposed to earning not to effort. Let me give you an example. Think of someone in your mind right at this moment, and hopefully you've all got someone like this, where you go, they are such amazing followers of Jesus. When I look at her, her life is so beautiful. I can see the fruits of the Holy Spirit just pouring out of him. You think of someone like that. And I'll tell you what, I tend to do when I look at someone like that. I, I tend to go like, wow. I, I can never be like that. 
When they became a Christian, they just were automatically like that. And I can't be like that. The gulf is, is too vast. They're amazing, and I couldn't be like that. Now, the issue is, and the, the, the foolishness with that is, we don't do that in any other area of life, do we? We don't look at someone who is somewhere further down the track in, in some area or endeavor of life and go like, I could never be like that because they were automatically like that, do we? Let, let me give you an example. Take, for example, running. Uh, when I went to study in England, I was totally fired up. Uh, there's a picture there. You know who that is? Roger Bannister. Yeah, some of you, you remember this. I don't remember this actually happening. But he, he was the first man to break the four-minute mile, and he did it on the university track at Oxford. So when I went to Oxford, I was like, I, I'd done athletics before. I was like, I want to I make the Oxford athletics team, and I want to run on that track that Roger Bannister ran on. So w- when I got to England, um, I... Soon after, a couple of days after I was in the university, I got my gear on, rode down to the track, same track that Rogers Bannister had broken it on. And as I was there, I saw an Australian athlete, actually, who was a friend of mine, and he was running 400-meter time trials. And there's a picture of him here. I think his name's Simon Hollingsworth. He's, he's an Olympian. And I, I didn't train that time. I just watched. And he was so beautiful and graceful. And I was like... I came back so pumped. I was like, oh no, I'm going I'm to be like Simon. I'm going to be in the Oxford Athletics team. I'm going to run on that track that Roger Bannister ran, and it's going to be glorious. And a few days later, I showed up to the first training session with Simon. Uh, about half an hour later, I was asking, what on earth have I done? I had that horrible, you know, the feeling of lactic acid when you're doing interval, going round and round and round. I had trouble breathing, I got got nauseous, and I now have the incredible distinction of having vomited on the same track that Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile on. And at the end of that time, you know what I did? I sort of hobbled to my bicycle, and I wobbled back home, and I've never been to that track ever again. Not once. You know why? Here's my point. I wanted to be able to run like Roger Bannister or Simon Hollingsworth. I wanted to be able to do it, but I was not prepared to do what they did in order to run like that. I wasn't prepared to have that kind of pain and that kind of training every week. It's not worth it. Now, I never went back. Now, now here's the point. When we look at someone who is has a standard of godliness and beauty, whose life is producing incredible fruits of holiness, the fruits of godliness, which Paul is talking about, we all want, I I want that. I want to be like she is. She's amazing. Or I'd love to be like him. But the question we need to ask is, well, what made that person like that? What, What did they do to become like that? Was it just the moment that they were converted, God automatically made them like that? That's not how it works. When we look at someone with with a a deep Christ-like, fruit-filled, spirit-filled life, we need to ask, well, what did they do to become like that? Because that's what we do in everything else. Because the truth is, not all of us are ever going to be able to break the four-minute mile, no matter how much we train. In fact, very few of us are. But all of us have a wide-open door to become like Jesus and to follow Him. What we need, if we're going to bear fruit like that person you can think of in your life, what we need is, we could call, and here, here's that word, a rule of life. 
Now, at this point, I, I know the rule of life sounds very unexciting. Rules? Maybe you've seen that on the series, you know, like a rule of life, a rule? I don't need more rules. It sounds boring and restrictive. Well, let me explain. We've called this series The Vine, The Trellis, and The Crow. The vine we saw last week comes from John's gospel where Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He says, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can't do anything. So so that's the framework. We're abiding in Jesus. We can't do anything without him. It's all about abiding in Jesus. Now we look today at the trellis. So what's a trellis? Well, a vine is not like many other trees. Uh, a vine, a grapevine, if it doesn't have a trellis, what happens? It stays close to the ground, doesn't it? And if it's close to the ground, it's close to the bugs. It doesn't get the air that it needs. It doesn't produce fruit, and the fruit that is produced is consumed by other things. So what a vine needs is, is a trellis. Um, the vine, the trellis can't produce anything, it's just a structure and a framework that allows the vine to, to thrive and produce fruit. In the same way, we're the vine. We're called to follow the voice of Jesus and produce fruit as we abide in him. In the same way that a vine needs a trellis in order to produce fruit, you and I need a trellis. Uh, the, word, the, Greek, the Roman word is regular, which means ruler, we talk about rule of life, it's also the same word for trellis. We need a trellis for our spiritual lives in order to produce the fruit that we want to produce, that that is a response to the free grace of Jesus Christ living and dwelling with us. We need a trellis. Um, We need to organize our lives in such a way that we abide in Jesus and he produces the fruit in us. Do you understand? Um, John Mark Comer is a writer, he puts it like this, he says, a rule of life is a set of practices and relational rhythms, both scheduled and spontaneous, that create space to receive and give love from God and from others. So that's what a a rule of life is. Um, Dallas Willard says, a rule of life is, it involves we must arrange our days so that we're experiencing deep joy peace and contentment in our life with Jesus. So a rule of life is is establishing um, a system of operating, a a way in which we live the days that we've been given that will allow us to abide in Jesus and produce the fruit that he gives us. And you might say, what will City on a Hill come up with next? Rule of life. Oh boy. You know, this, this is not new. Um, it's existed from the beginning of the church, a rule of life. It's been called a rule of life for at least 1,500 years, so long before the Protestant and Catholic churches separated. The rule of life is something that's been around from the beginning. And here's something. You already have a rule of life. Do you know that? Every single person here has some kind of trellis that they've built to enable them to get what they want from their lives. You, you have a rule of life. No exceptions. All of us have it. So for some of us, um, well, Edward Denning was a um, leading management theorist. 
in business quality. And he said this about, about business. Every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. Think about that for a moment. Every, every business system designed perfectly to get the results it gets, whether they are successful or whether they are not successful. The system is designed to get that result. And you've got a system in your life that is designed to get the result that you are getting. This is really important. So, you know, the question is to ask, what is your rule of life? You've got a system already. The question to ask is, what is it, and is it doing what it should do? Um, Some of us have a really type A kind of person. We have our goals set out, and maybe it's to succeed at school, in university, or to to climb the job ladder. Uh, Maybe it's to athletic performance or achievement, and we are so, once we get that goal, we, we organize and structure our life around achieving it. Um, other of us might have a rule of life which was a little bit similar to Winston Churchill's as a young man. I don't know if you've heard this. He was looking back and not speaking positively, but he said this, my rule of life prescribed as an absolutely sacred right, smoking cigars and also the drinking of alcohol before, after and if need be during all meals and in the intervals between them. He had a rule of life. He looked back and, and is, it was actually in the context of saying, if I had not changed that rule of life, it would have been disastrous. We all have a rule of life that is bearing some kind of fruit. What's yours? Um, How is your life structured? What are the systems that you have in place? What's the trellis that you have that will enable you and allow you to dwell and abide in Jesus, the vine? It's hard. Um, If you, I would say it doesn't happen by accident, if you um, come this morning and go, I've got no idea what you mean by rule of life, I don't even know what my rule of life is, almost certainly you will have a rule of life that will not be allowing you to flourish as God wants you to in Jesus Christ, his son. And here's why. Because our current moment in time is more difficult than it's ever been before. So let me quote in depth from a guy called Ronald Rollheiser. Anyone that's got a name like that is worth listening to. Ronald Rollheiser, he says... Today, a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together, accidentally producing a climate in which it's difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Let me say it again. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. He goes on. It's not that we've got anything against God, depth, and spirit. We'd like these... It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We're more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. Isn't he right? Uh, Here's something I've learned, and I don't know if that's the case with you. If you're a Christian here today, if you're not, so glad you're with us. But if you are a Christian and you've received that wonderful free grace of God in your life, I would suggest to you that when you first became a Christian, you automatically adopted a rule of life that was pretty good. Say it again. I, I think when we begin our Christian walks, we 
Most of us, many of us, we naturally adopt a rule of life that is good at producing the fruit. It's a good trellis. So let me explain. So when I was 17, I said I was into athletics and, and I had a very disciplined rule of life that was designed, it was a system designed to get me athletic success. So I, I trained every night after school. I went to the gym three mornings a week before school. I dieted. Um, I, uh, I, my room was covered with photos of great athletes. I had, had the times that I needed to achieve listed on my wall. Um, I would sp- I'd spend my evenings visualizing athletic performance. I'd spend my summer holidays at training camps. And you might go, yeah, that's a typical type A bad performance thing. And I was totally obsessed with it. It was a structure that was designed to get me certain athletic outputs, and it did pretty well at doing what I wanted to. The structure produced the results. It always does. When I became a Christian when I was 17, no one had to tell me to change my system or to build a neutralis. It was just obvious. Because I read the Bible and I saw Jesus, what he did in his life, and I saw what the Christians were told to do, and I was, oh, that's automatically. So instantly, the very next day I became a Christian, I started reading the Bible every morning. Because it's what, it's what you do. If I'm going to abide in God and listen to God, I need to read his word. I started setting aside time for prayer every day. I started, I used to hate going to church. And was, you know, um, any of you kids, I, I used to, I used to sit in the car and one of my brothers, we had two brothers and a sister, and one of, you know, the sister, and we would sort of play games on bipping the horn and, and, and like, you know, it's like mum and dad are inside talking to people and we're like, beep, you know, it's like, and then eventually come out and I was like, it was her, you know, so we, suddenly as a, as a Christian, I was like, I can't wait to go to church. I go twice on Sundays. Uh, I started like uh, going to midweek Bible studies soon after I, I left home, was at university. Midweek Bible studies, I'd spend my weekends uh, visiting a youth prison and, and working in a homeless shelter. And you might think like, man, that must have been a heavy burden. It was wonderful. There was a trellis in my life that was producing fruit. I was abiding in Jesus. They were the best years of my life. But, he, but here's where the concern is. Incrementally, after years of following Jesus, the trellis started to rot. In my case, it, it started to become less effective. And for me, part of it was theology. Because I, I went to true speaking churches of true gospel sharing people, but it's this is my fault, not theirs. I heard we're under grace. I, 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 have, I have this trellis in my life, but it's all a bit legalistic. I don't need to do that anymore. I've been set free. I don't need to fast anymore because Jesus is, is here. I, I don't need to do those things. And, and slowly and incrementally, I stopped doing those things with the diligence that I had before, expecting that I'd get the same results. And I look back on, on a, a, a considerable period of my life and go, wow. You know, I should have been more happy because I had more time. I had less disciplines to do, and I, and I you could sleep in longer. I didn't have to worry about praying and, and reading the Bible. I didn't, I, you know, I could, I could, church could be a bit hit and miss, you know. Oh, a lot of camping to be done, and I can, I can come every now. And, and suddenly I look back and realize, I don't know how it, just at the end point was that I felt distant from God, and the fruit of the Holy Spirit was not what it had been. And I felt spiritually anemic. See, the trellis had broken down. I wanted to produce the fruit, but I'd stopped doing the things that should have produced the fruit and would produce the fruit. I know I'm not alone in this. And I, 
I would bet that there is at least one other person here that goes, yep, I know what I'd love to be as a Christian, I know the fruit that I want in my life, but it's not there right now. And it might be because you have not set up the trellis that you need to, to achieve the fruit, abiding in Jesus, only abiding in, only he can produce the fruit in you. But you haven't set up the trellis so that you can abide in him as he tells us to. You're not listening to his voice and following him perhaps as you once did. Um, I like the words of Jesus, I don't like them, but they're, they're confronting. Uh, in Revelation, Jesus speaks to the church at Ephesus. It's a church that's great on teaching and it's got a lot, of, uh, a lot of good things he's got to say about this church in Ephesus. But then in Revelation chapter two, verse four, he says this, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Um, that was something that, that I think challenged me for many years because every time I read that verse, I was like, yeah, that's me. I've abandoned the love I had at first. But listen, listen to what Jesus says next. He says, repent and do the works you did at first. Did you hear that again? Repent, turn, turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Uh, Jesus is speaking to this church and he says, you've lost your first love. The fruits of the Spirit are not what they were. And he says to this church, he doesn't say, oh, that's all fine, just, you know, you'll be good, just keep going. He says, you need to repent, you need to turn around. And then he says words which, which sometimes are hard for us to hear because we go, no, he says, do what you did at first. Do the works that you did at first. I think he's speaking about the trellis. So the things that, that you did at first that kept you close to Jesus and you abide in him, do them again. Repent. Well, maybe you say, well, Andrew, this sounds all well and good. I just don't have any more time. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a busy young mum. You know, I'm studying VCE. I've got university exams. I'm in a different spot in my life. My business consumes all my time. My kids consume all my time. I've got another time for any more rules. I just don't have time. Well, a rule of life is actually not about addition, primarily. We're going to see over the next weeks, it's about subtraction. A rule of life that we're talking about in the Bible, abiding in Jesus, is making sure that, that what we say we value most, and if you're a Christian, Jesus Christ is what you value most. You must value most. It's making sure that our life the system that we have in our life, the trellis, is oriented around abiding in him. And for most of us, that means not addition, it means subtraction. Taking away the things in our life that consume so much time that have no real permanent benefit so that we can focus on what really does, abiding in Jesus. And for that, we all have enough time. Well, do you, as I finish, do you want to know what it is to have the light yoke and the easy burden? Of course you do. This morning, as you sit under God's word, maybe is the Spirit saying, that's you, you've, you've left the love that you had at first. This is the most, it can feel like a guilt trip. Here we are talking about more rules that I'm not keeping. Or, it, it's not a guilt trip. This is an invitation an invitation from Jesus Christ to listen to his voice, to follow him, 
the free grace that saved you as you were justified, declared righteous, to work that out in your life in a way that will produce fruit, that will be a benefit to others and will bring you joy. It's a light burden. It's an easy yoke. But I will say, as I finish, that there's no way that just spending a little bit of time on on a Sunday in the service together, as good as that is, there's no way that if you really want to build that structure, if you're serious about following Jesus, because you know, this is going to sound odd, but it's true, you will get out of Jesus what you put into following Jesus, right? It's true of everything else, and it's true of your walk with him too. You will get out of following Jesus what you put into following Jesus. If you put in little, you'll get little. If you're prepared to actually reorient your life around abiding and following him, then you will see his work in your life. Then you will bear real fruit as you abide in Jesus in the way that he tells us to. But there's no way you can do that just on a Sunday. It's great, but there's, there's two ways that you can this week begin this process if you're serious. You, you want to abide, you want to bear fruit and you're prepared to live like Jesus did and like he tells us to live in order to do it. Two things. Number one, there's a, an individual exercise which you can do. You can find it online. Um, it's, um, it'll be again in the church email this week. Uh, you, you can see all the details. It's, it's a wonderful resource which will help you define what your rule of life already is and then begin to think of ways you might change it. It's very practical, very easy. It was designed by a pastor at Sion Hill, Wollongong, um, Joel Deacon drawing a lot of other stuff. It's excellent. It's online. If you're the person who goes, I'm not into online stuff, then we have some copies of those available for you this morning if you want a hard copy. And the welcomers at the back have those. You can work through that. It's a simple procedure. It's easy to follow. But even better is being in a, in a group with other Christians this week, a gospel community. And our gospel community is going to be spending time thinking, okay, where are we at in our rule of life? What's my trellis look like? What changes do I need to make? What things do I need to drop that I might bear much fruit as I listen to the voice of him? So this week, if you're not in a gospel community, it'd be a wonderful point to join, a wonderful point to, to try out at least what it is to be with others going deep. You'll, you'll get out of following Jesus what you put into him. There's an opportunity here to, to really go deeper. Jesus said, and this is what I want to end with because I'd hate you to think that I'm just loading stuff like the Pharisees. Jesus accused me, he said, you load burdens on me, you don't lift a finger to help, woe to you. Last thing I want to be as a Pharisee, and Jesus said, you load burdens on people. That's not what it's about. The free grace of God in Jesus Christ sets us free. But there's effort that we required as we followed after the voice of the shepherd. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I'm going to pray for us. Musicians are going to come and lead us as we sing and we worship it. Let's pray. Father, as we continue in this series, would you protect us from the errors of thinking that 
your grace is not enough, that you depend on our work, that we somehow save ourselves, would you protect us from that error of the devil? And Lord, would you also protect us from the error that says that because your grace is infinite, then we can draw on it infinitely without any effort of our own. So Lord, would you protect us from legalism and would you protect us from that licentiousness that says that we can do whatever we like because the grace of God covers it. And Lord, we pray um, this morning that as a church, we might use this series to go deeper in you, to honestly look at our trellis and as the weeks ahead, as we, we look at various parts of what it is to follow you, that you give us in your word. Lord, we ask that you would make this a fruitful period. We ask, Lord, that if anyone this morning is feeling heavy laden, with heavy burdens, maybe they don't even know you yet, Lord, that they would this morning find the freedom, the freedom of following you, Lord Jesus, the the light yoke and the easy burden. So we pray these things in confidence and in faith and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.